You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, I've been thinking this week about bad dreams. Bad dreams. I don't know, I, I particularly some recurring bad dreams I have about being a pastor. <laughs> and there's some of those dreams, I have a few recurring bad dreams, you probably do too. Uh, not the ones where you're back in high school. I don't know how many of you have them, where you're back in high school. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? What am I doing here? Uh, the, the, the pastoral bad dreams I have, the, one of the most common recurring ones I have is where I, I've got to preach, it's time for me to preach, and I've got no sermon written. And it's just, this, I, it's just this terrible feeling. I hate it. And I have this dream all the time. And I'm not sure why. I don't think I've ever been, yet been in an opportunity or a position where I didn't have anything prepared. But I have this bad dream. I also, uh, part B of that bad dream is as I'm trying to flounder my way through and to say something, people are getting up and leaving and ignoring. Nobody's listening. And so I have this recurring bad dream. Now, I asked around a couple of pastor friends about uh, uh, if they have pastor bad dreams. It turns out they do, too. One friend of mine says, he's like, oh, yeah, I have this recurring bad dream where he says the worship team didn't show up, and I had to lead the worship music. <laughs> and he's like, you know, it's this dream, and it's just terrible, and it's offbeat, and nobody's singing. And then in my dream, he's like, then I got to stand and preach and pretend as though the music wasn't terrible. And uh, anyway, that's his bad dream. That's another friend of mine, pastor friend of mine, about, uh, about any pastor bad dreams he has. And he says, most of my bad dreams are all, all things that happen in real life. And I get it. I get it. In church ministry, and pastoral ministry, there are conflicts, there are crises that can be, let's just call them living nightmares. But perhaps the worst nightmare of all that any pastor could face is when their people walk away from Jesus, when their people drift away from him, when their people become unfaithful and rebel against him. And one of the biggest burdens, I think, of any pastor is that their people would stand firm in the faith and stay faithful to Jesus. We can deal with a lot of problems. We can deal with a lot of real-life bad dreams. We can deal with all kinds of challenges so long as our people stay true to Christ. We can deal with it. The Apostle John said, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, the people I pastor, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's like, yeah, you want to make me happy? You want to make me happy? Then follow Jesus. You want to bless your pastor? Live for Jesus. Live for him. Love him. And I suspect that the same could be said here for every elder, for every small group leader, for every godly parent, every godly grandparent. You just say to your, the, the people you care for and love and lead, you want to make me happy? Love Jesus and live for him. You can do anything else, but just love Jesus and live for him. At the same time, there's few things that are more heartbreaking than when sheep wander. When people, for a person to believe, to be baptized, to begin bearing fruit, and then to rebel against Christ or wander from him, to become unfaithful and disobedient, that's a nightmare. Those are times when you wish it was just a bad dream. But sadly, too often it's not. It's probably for this reason that Paul the Apostle pleaded with the Philippians to stand firm. When he wrote to them in Philippians, uh, Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he, he pleaded with them to stand firm in the Lord, to, to be a people who not only know the truth and believe the truth, but also walk in the truth. 
See, the, the Philippians faced the same kind of problems that we face. Uh, their world was a lot different. There's, there's a gazillion things that were different about, uh, was different about their life from ours. But we have some things in common. Just like the Philippians, uh, just like us, the Philippians were surrounded by ungodly influences. There was a world around them that was ungodly, and there were many ungodly influences, and it was, it was so easy to compromise, so easy to drift away from Jesus. And there was no shortage of false teachers and fake believers to make you think that that's somehow okay. You, you, could, just, you could just do whatever you want, and it'll all be okay in the end. God is a loving God. Well, he is a loving God, but that doesn't erase other things that the Bible tells us about truth and, uh, and justice and holiness. And so just like, just like us, the Philippians, they, they needed, they needed to, to stay faithful to the Lord, and Paul pleaded with them and gave them a strong word, calling them to stand firm, to stand firm in the Lord. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's what he did. He called them in Philippians 4 verse 1 to stand firm, to don't drift, don't wander, don't be moved, stay faithful. Stay faithful. But the question is, how? How does one stay faithful? We can agree it's a, it's a good word for us to stay faithful to the Lord, to stand firm in the Lord. But how do you do that? Well, I think that our text helps us immensely in that regard that we're going to see today. In our passage, we're going to see Paul's exhortation to stand firm, to stand firm in the Lord. But we're especially going to see some some practical pastoral instruction on how to stand firm, how to stay faithful. And my intent is that these instructions are, would be uh, instructions that you yourself can internalize and grab hold of and apply in your life, but also to equip you who lead others to share them with others. Uh, see, I would envision you not only hearing this and, and internalizing these instructions for your own life, but also being equipped today to instruct others in how to stand firm in the Lord also. Well, let's, let's look and see what Paul says about how to stand firm in the Lord. Reading from verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Brothers, or brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. Now, we'll just pause there for a moment. Verses 12 to 16, Paul talked about his own life. Remember a week ago, we, talked about, we read about Paul's um, passion to press on for the Lord. He talked about how he pressed on. He was reaching forward toward the goal of the, upward, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And pressing forward toward heaven. That's the, the posture of the Christian life. Not sitting back, but reaching forward. Paul says, that's what I do. I, I press on for Jesus. And, and with, with purpose and intentionality. So Paul, in verses 12 to 16, has talked about how he lives the Christian life. Now, verse 17, you see what he says? He says, brothers, join in imitating me. In other words, just as I live and follow Jesus, you do it too. You live your life just how I live my life in Christ. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You see, there's lots of bad examples out there. So we got to follow the good examples. Verse 20. But. So verse, verse 19, they got their minds set on earthly things. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in where? 
It's in heaven that there's a life-altering perspective. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, in other words, from heaven, we await a Savior. Who's the Savior? That's right. The Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do? Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's a lot of power. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Now there's an exhortation. Stand firm. But notice the word thus. Stand firm thus. In other words, stand firm in this manner. Stand firm in this way. In what way? Well, in the ways that he's just given, verses 17 to 21. In these things that I've just told you about, in these things, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So the call is to stand firm. Don't drift away from the Lord. Don't become unfaithful to him. Stay on mission for him. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. How? How do we do that, Paul? How do we do that? Well, verses 17 to 21, he tells us how. In fact, I've, I've highlighted, I'm going to highlight for you, three things that Paul tells us. Three, three keys for standing firm and staying faithful in Jesus. Three, three pastoral, practical pastoral instructions to show us how to stay faithful to Jesus. We're going to see that there is first a pattern to follow, there's a position in which we stand, and then there's a person to count on. Okay, so pattern, position, person. These are three keys for standing firm in the faith. Number one, how do I, how do I stand firm and stay faithful to the Lord? Number one, copy the pattern of mature believers. Copy the pattern of mature believers. You see, you see where I'm getting that from, verse 17? Join in imitating me. Now, remember verses 12 to 16, Paul outlined how he lives the Christian life. He says, so now you follow me. And I say mature believers because in verse 15, Paul, in talking about how he sees the Christian life, how he lives the Christian life, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. So Paul has in mind that mature believers, mature Christianity, and now here, here he's saying, now follow me, as a, follow me like a mature believer. And follow others who are like me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Copy the pattern of mature believers. The NIV says, join together in following my example. That's really clear, isn't it? Follow me. How do I stay faithful to the Lord? How do I live this Christian life? Watch me and do what I do. That's what Paul says. Just follow me. I'll show you the way. Be imitators of, of, of mature believers, what they do, how they live, how they act, the way that they do it. Be imitators of them. Now, this, this requires that, first of all, that we'll pay attention to their example. Pay attention to the example of godly believers. Okay, copy, copy the pattern of mature believers in your life. You can do that by paying attention, watching and seeing how it is they live. You, you see that in verse 17? Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. If you keep your eyes on something, you pay attention to it. You're focusing on it. You're watching to see. 
How do I, how do I handle my money? How do I handle conflict? How do I, how do I evangelize? How do I study the Bible? How do I apply scripture? These are all practical questions in our lives. How do we do this? Well, watch and see how a mature believer does this. How does this godly man or woman handle his or her money? How does this godly woman deal with conflict? How does this godly man raise his family? How does you watch and pay attention? Watch, find a mature believer and watch them. Pay attention. Keep your eyes focused on them. You know, I was thinking about this week that um, nobody taught me how to shave. Like, no, I now have a beard, just like, no kidding. I didn't always have a beard. No, nobody, like I never took a shaving lesson. Like nobody ever sat me down and gave me a handout, a brochure on, now here's how to shave. Step one, you wet your face. Step two, you get the shaving. Like nobody did that. Nobody ever instructed me in how to shave. You know how I learned how to shave? Watching my dad. Remember just being a kid, watching my dad? Your dad, he used to, now he was old school, right? He had the, he had the you know, the brush, you know, the thing, and, and the, the brick or whatever that is in there. And he did that up there. And you know, I remember him painting his face and then watching that, I don't know, I didn't do it, I didn't, I didn't do anything. And shaving away, shaving, off his, shaving up his face and everything, I, I watched him, I watched him, and then one day when I got to be about that time where it was time for this little fuzz to go away, I just did everything that I saw my dad do. There's many things in the Christian life that are taught. There's many things in the Christian life that are caught by watching now in Philippi, Paul knew that the Philippians knew people like Timothy, people like Epaphroditus, who were others-oriented, gospel-focused, sacrificial servants. And I think when he, when he says, you know, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, I think he thinks of men like that and godly women in their midst. In Niagara, here, men and women in our church who live faithfully for the Lord. Watch their example, loved one. You want to grow in Christ? You want to stay faithful to the Lord? Watch the people who are doing it. Pay attention to them. Look and see how they give, how they serve, how they pray, how they parent. Watch and see how they worship, how they evangelize, how they respond to crisis, how they deal with opposition, how they handle disappointment. See how they handle success. See how they handle failure. Watch how they treat their family. Watch how they speak to their spouse. Pay attention, pay attention to how they do it. Watch. Copy the pattern of mature believers. Pay attention to their example. Imitate their example. Imitate their example. Paul says, join in imitating me, or join together in following my example. You know, one of the ways that God has ordained for us to stay faithful to Jesus is by copying the examples of people who stay faithful to Jesus. Living our lives like them. Now, I was thinking about this. There's so many godly men and women that God has put in my life who have been a huge blessing to me, not just in the things that they've taught me verbally, but in the things they've taught me in their living. I'm thinking, I'm thinking as I'm writing this sermon this week of a, a brother I've known. He's maybe a year or two younger than me. I've known him for a long time. He's a missionary in a part of the world, it's very difficult to be a missionary. And I was just thinking about, you know, he, he is, God uses him as a huge inspiration for me every time I get around him. 
I just get refreshed with a zeal for the gospel and a passion for evangelism. And, and he, he, he inspires me with, to, to be creative and to be prayer dependent and gospel focused. Just, just get around him and you get ideas about how to love people and how to make Jesus known. It just, it's just such a huge blessing to me. It's not even like he's not giving me a lecture or saying, now Ross, if you really want to make your life count, here's six points on how to do it. Then do it. It's just by being around him and watching him and, and seeing his ministry. I think even, haven't known him very long, but just getting to know Pastor Robbie Simons. He was here a couple weeks ago, and you know, I said to my wife, we spent a little bit of time with him that day when he was here preaching, and I said to my wife after, after he and Jill left, I said, you know, I haven't known him long, but I get around him, and after I'm around him for a little bit, like, I'm ready to run through a wall. Guy, <laughs> I, I just, you know what I mean? Like, he, I just... I just get around him, and I just find I pray bolder. I feel like I lead better. I just feel like, like, yes, let's, let's go. Thank you, Lord, for people like that. You got people like that in your life? If you don't, pray for them. God, send me someone like that. If you're in this church, you got them. It's all kinds of men and women in our church instead of godly example who show you the way. Pay attention to their example. Imitate their example. Beware of those who set an ungodly example. That's where he goes in verse 18, isn't it? He goes on about following godly examples of mature believers. And then he says, for, in other words, here's why I'm telling you this. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross. Now there's lots of speculation about who in particular Paul has in mind here. I just say, we don't know for sure, for sure, who exactly, like what group of people he has in mind here. And we say that because Paul doesn't say. But whoever they are, they had to have been influential. Because Paul says here, he says, I've told you uh, whom I have often told you about them. So it's like Paul has felt it necessary to, on many occasions, talk about the ungodly example of these people, whoever they are. And I would surmise that they maybe, just maybe, are people who have professed to be Christians at one time because Paul talks about these tears. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. So there's, there's some kind of pastoral heartbreak here which makes me think, I wonder if they were people who professed to know Christ or professed to know Christ, who've wandered from him. Paul says that they are enemies of the cross. Again, it's hard to know exactly what he means by that, but I would surmise that they do one of two things or both these things. They either, one, teach things that are contrary to the message of the cross, or they endorse living in ways that dismisses what, that diminishes what Jesus died on the cross to accomplish. We know that there are people around Philippi who, who were false teachers, who taught things contrary to the message of the cross. Remember, we studied that not too long ago, how Paul identified there was false teachers who added things to the gospel. Said, yes, 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 Jesus. Yes, sure, you need to believe in Jesus. But also what you need to do is you need to keep the law. You need to follow the Mosaic law. You, you've got to save you, was the teaching. And of course, we saw that Paul said that's rubbish. There's people who taught things contrary to the message of the cross. There's people around us that do that still. That will give lip service to Jesus, but, but call you to a works-based salvation. Or call you to a hope outside of Christ. Those are enemies of the cross. 
Of course, just as prevalent are those who live in ways that diminish or dismiss what Jesus died to accomplish. Godless people who ignore God's call to holiness. What did Jesus die on the cross to do? To bring you to God, to make you holy. But there's this idea out there, there's this attitude out there, and these ungodly examples out there that says, it doesn't matter how you live. You just say a prayer and, and, you know, show up at church on Sunday, and it doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life, it's all good. Well, that's nonsense, that's rubbish, that's dangerous. The attitude that goes around saying, well, God will forgive me anyway, that's not a Christian. And you can't follow people like that, but people do. And what happens is we get a notion in our mind that I'm going to go this way, and then we, we look for people who affirm the way that we've chosen to go. But those people you're looking to, Paul says, are not good examples for you because they're going to hell. You see that in verse 19? Their end is destruction. That's hell. They're hellbound. They're not going to heaven. They don't know Jesus. Oh, they might say they know Jesus, but they don't. Well, how do you know, Paul? Look at their life. They don't love him. They're not honoring him. Their destiny is destruction. Notice who their God is. This, he, God, here Paul is exposing, helping us to see who some of these ungodly examples are. Their God is their belly. In other words, I take that to mean their, their sinful appetites. Their flesh is in charge, not Jesus. Notice their glory. What do they glory in? Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Things they should be ashamed of, they're proud of. Notice their mindset, their focus. It's on earthly things. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Let me ask you, dear friend, who's influencing you? Who's influencing you right now? Who are you following? And who's following you? I mean, you can think on one hand of what examples you are imitating in your life, but also think about who might be imitating you. What kind of example are, are you setting? Are you setting an example that's worthy of being followed? Can you say to others, hey, you want to know how to follow Jesus? Just do it like I do. Are you in a position in your life where you can say that? You're like, oh, I don't know. That, that actually sounds kind of proud. Is that even right? Is that even right? Let's just stand back. Let's just answer this for a second. Is it even right to say, hey, you want to follow Jesus? Follow me. Is that even right? Yes, it is right. It's all over the place in Scripture. Listen to what 1 Peter 5.3 says. He says to elders in the church, be examples to the flock. Be examples of the flock. Show the flock how to follow Jesus. Hebrews 13 and 7, talking about church leaders, says, says consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Follow them. Do, do it like they do. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 and 12, let no one despise you for your youth. So Timothy was a young man. It's like, don't, don't let your age be a factor. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Show them by your life how to follow Jesus. Titus 2 and 7, Paul told Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. You see, setting an example for others is biblical. It's expected, but it's also sobering, isn't it? Because eyes are watching. What kind of an example are you setting, mom, dad? Grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, what kind of example are you setting small group leader, elder, church member? If people were to study your life, 
And you'd be surprised that more people do than you realize. If people were to watch your life, would they be more like Jesus if they did it how you do it? Would they be more faithful, more obedient, more fruitful? I was reading this in a book uh, by, I think her name's Nancy DeMoss. I know her last name is DeMoss. I should have written down her first name. I think it's Nancy. Nancy Lee DeMoss, I think is her name. She wrote this. Uh, this, is pretty, this is pretty sobering. Listen to what she wrote. She said, I have a friend whose 90 and 92-year-old parents recently moved out of their house where they lived for 50 years. My friend spent an entire month sorting through a lifetime of their accumulated stuff. Correspondence, financial data, clippings, photos, and on and on. Some of you have been there, helping an elderly parent transition to life. Their friend said, it was a complete record of their lives. All the stuff they went through. She writes, after pouring through the massive collection of memorabilia and paperwork, the son observed with a sense of wonder, listen, there was not one single thing in my parents' belongings that was inconsistent with their profession of their relationship with Christ. If something happened to you today, and we all went over to your house and sorted through all your stuff, will we find that you really were, even behind closed doors, an example worthy to be followed? It's sobering. It's really sobering. Damas says, how would you fare if someone were to go through your record of your life? All your possessions, books, magazines, CD and DVD collections, checkbooks, tax returns, journals, daily planners, phone bills, correspondence, past emails, record of all your internet activity. What if a person could also review a photographic replay of the choices you made when you thought no one was watching? Helen Rosevere said this. She's a missionary to what was in the Congo. She said this, There must be nothing, absolutely nothing in my daily conduct that copied by another would lead that one into unholiness. Amen. Amen. It's crucial that we follow the pattern of godly, mature believers. That's how we'll stand firm in the faith. And as we set that example, that's how others will stand firm also. By imitating, by, by patterning their life after mature believers. God's provision for us to stay faithful, one of his provisions for us to stay faithful is through following godly examples. That's one way. But there's another way in verse 20. Notice the contrast between verses 19 and 20. The end of verse 19, he's talking about these bad examples who have their minds set on earthly things. Then verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. You see the contrast? So there's a way of living where, where I'm focused on what's temporal and in the, on the earth. But for you and me, we're not like that. Our minds are not set on earthly things because we're citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. So ungodly people are consumed with what's temporal and earthly, but as citizens of heaven, we're consumed with what's heavenly, what's of God. We live here in this world. But the Bible tells us that we're exiles. You know, that First Peter 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us that we're exiles here in this world. In other words, we don't really belong here. This is, we're, we're not at home here. The Bible tells us that we are ambassadors of, of Christ here in this world. In other words, we, we represent another kingdom here in this world. Our church is an outpost of another country, of heaven. So we're, we're not, this isn't our home. Our true citizenship, our real home, is, is in heaven. Understanding this, grasping this, 
totally has an impact on me standing firm in the Lord. Because when I realize that my true home is heaven, my true belonging is God's kingdom, then that does something for me in recognizing that in this world where I'm in exile, I've got to stand firm in the Lord and encourages me and emboldens me to live for him. So the second thing I want you to see, the pastoral instruction, is that we got to comprehend the position in which we stand. Understand or comprehend the position in which you stand. You are a citizen of heaven. You know, this would have resonated with the Philippians because the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. The citizens in Philippi, even though Philippi was over 1,200 kilometers away from Rome, the citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens. So this whole notion of being citizens of heaven here on earth would have really resonated with the Philippians. You're like, oh yeah, kind of like, kind of like the, the population of our city. They we live here and do life here, and, and this is home for now, but real home is somewhere else. Paul says that's exactly what it is for you as a Christian. Our citizenship is in heaven. Here we are in Niagara, but our priorities, our passions, our purposes are rooted in, flow out of heaven, our true home. As citizens of heaven, then, what consumes us is not what consumes the world, right? Right? What consumes us is not what consumes the world, right? It's what, consumes, it's what concerns God. It's his passions, his purposes. So what we're consumed with, what we think a lot about, what we're passionate about is the advance of the gospel, the growth of the church, the sanctification of saints, the salvation of sinners. That's what we're wrapped up in, aren't we? Aren't we? Isn't that, isn't that what we go to bed th- thinking about at night? Isn't that the, the, the theme in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our minds every day? Jesus and his mission and his purpose, is, isn't that? Is it? <laughs> Pray that it is. But honestly, for some of us, is it? It's a challenge, isn't it? Because we see, we can forget this. This is how we drift. We we drift, we drift away because we get consumed with things that the Lord is not consumed with. And our focus gets to be on what's temporal and what's immediate and not what's eternal. That's why it's so important for us to comprehend, to comprehend the position in which we stand. That is, as citizens of heaven. See, what we got to be consumed with is Christ and holiness and revival and obedience to his word. I just wonder if we did a little audit, a review of our accounts, our calendars, our communications, even over the last six months, let's say, would it be evident that you and I are citizens of heaven? Two things arise from this, I think. One is that some of us believers if we're honest, I think are way too at home in the world. Part of the call here is to remember that this is not your home. Heaven is your home. Don't get too comfortable here. Also, it shouldn't surprise us that we regularly experience significant trouble because we're not in heaven yet. We're not in heaven. This is earth. We need to regularly keep that at the forefront of our minds as you go through whatever you're going to go through this week, that I'm a citizen of heaven. My first concern must be that which concerns Christ. 
And to keep that perspective that maybe by God's mercy, maybe in God's kindness, some of the challenges in my life right now are a good, gracious providence to keep me from becoming too comfortable here. Because this is not my home. Comprehend, dear friend, the position in which you stand. You're a citizen of heaven. That perspective, that knowledge will help you stand firm and not drift away into worldliness. This isn't my home. My allegiance is with the king and his kingdom. How do you stand firm? How do you stay faithful? Copying the pattern of mature believers. Comprehending the position in which we stand. Thirdly, by counting on the person of Jesus Christ. Counting on the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to stand firm, stay faithful to the Lord, then count on Jesus. Bank on him. Hope on him. Take the full weight of your confidence and place it on Jesus. You say, where do you get that from? I get it from verses 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, notice, we await a Savior. Now, if you're awaiting something, if you're waiting for something, what are you doing? You're expecting it, right? Like if you're waiting for a phone call, right? Phone rings, oh, oh, that'll be for me. It's mine. I got it, right? If you still have a home phone, I don't know if anybody has that anymore or not. We do. Oh, that's for me. That's for me. You're, somebody, you're expecting somebody to come. Doorbell ring. Oh, that's for me. I'm ready. See, I'm, I'm waiting for you. I'm going about my life. I'm doing some things, but I'm waiting. I'm expecting something. What are we expecting? We're expecting a Savior. We are anticipating a Savior. We await for him. We await his return. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And look what he will do. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Count on the person of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Firstly, eagerly awaiting his return. Do you eagerly await the return of Jesus? Like, like are, you, are you like on that this week? Are you on that even today, eagerly awaiting the, the return of Jesus? Has it crossed your mind yet today? Today could be the day that Jesus returns. It's possible it could happen. He could return. We expect him. We stand, we, we stand firm by eagerly awaiting his return, with our eyes looking toward him and him coming back. You know, we believe as Christians, we believe in the return of Jesus. We believe that his return will be real. Like he really will come back. Acts 1.11 said, the angel said to the disciples who'd watched Jesus uh, ascend. Ascend is go up, right? Yeah. Ascend. The ascension, right. I, took, I read that somewhere. Yeah, the ascension. So the disciples, oh boy. So the disciples, they watched Jesus ascend. And the angel said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. So, like, we expect he really will return. His return will be real. His return will be physical. Just as he physically departed, so he will physically return. We also believe that his return will be sudden. It will be sudden. Luke 12 and 40, Jesus said, You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When something happens at a time you don't expect it, it's sudden. Like, whoa, there it is. It happened. He's here. That's what it's going to be like. Many, many have predicted when Jesus would return, and they've all got one thing in common. They've all been wrong. Jesus, I don't get people. I don't get it. 
People trying to calculate dates and times, but I, I don't understand it. And I'm not trying to insult, I just don't understand it. Jesus said, the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So don't expect to know exactly when, but expect this, it will be sudden. It'll be real, it'll be physical, it'll be sudden, and for the believer, it will be glorious. Amen. It'll be glorious. Second Thessalonians 5 and 10 says, when he comes on that day, he'll be glorified in his saints and marveled at among all who believed. The persecuted, the marginalized followers of Jesus will be vindicated. We'll see him as he is, John says, and we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. And we'll be with him. And there will be no more separation from him. There will be no more waiting. There will be no more longing, no more struggling. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Of the song by Jordan Felice, Jesus is coming back. You know that song? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Have you ever thought that the world has kind of lost its way? Crazy as it seems, yeah, I know it's going to be okay. It doesn't scare me. It's temporary. There's something better. We got forever, and it won't be long, because you know our help is on the way. Way. (laughs) So keep your head up. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Don't you give up. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And when the world gets complicated... I'm going to keep on celebrating because we know that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. It's a good song. Yeah. Oh, that's nice of you. Thanks. I'll see if second service caps for me too, okay? I'll let you know. I'll let you know. They do come true. They do, yes. Maybe even some bad ones. We'll see. If they all get up and left, you can... Sympathize with me. I'll get up and leave. Loved ones, he's coming back. Eagerly await his return. Sometimes we drift. Sometimes we become unfaithful because we don't have our eyes fixed on the fact that Jesus is returning. I love it in some places in Scripture, the return of Jesus is, well, in some ways as a call, sometimes the return of Jesus is given as a warning as a caution to stay awake. And we need that caution. Stay awake. He's coming. Hey, he's coming. And you need to be ready. Because if you don't know him, on that day he, recomes, he comes, for believers it will be glorious, but for unbelievers it will be grievous. So you, you need to be ready. When, that, when Jesus returns, if you are not with him, if you're not for him now, he will be against you then. And so you... I'm not trying to freak you out. I'm just saying what the Bible says. You need to be ready for him, and that means you need to get right with him. And the wonderful thing is the door is wide open for you to get right with him. Even right now, to turn to him and say, Jesus, I need you as my Savior, not as my judge. And so I come to you. Sometimes the return of Christ is given as a warning. But here, though, is given as a source of strength. Because he's calling us, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. In this way, stand firm, by waiting for Jesus, by awaiting him, eagerly, eagerly awaiting his return, and eagerly anticipating what he'll do when he returns. What's he going to do when he returns? He says, Paul says, he's going to do something with your body. He's going to take your lowly body. You say, speak for yourself, pastor. 
Well, it is. Does your body get sick? Is your body going to quit working one of these days? That's a lowly body. He'll take your lowly body, he'll transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. This is amazing. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the day when Jesus returns, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen. But in this part here, what he's talking about is he's talking about the fact that Jesus will raise us up from the dead and he will take these bodies that are prone to sickness and disease and death and make them into bodies that will never die. He will give us bodies that are fit for eternity. He'll, take our, he'll transform our lowly body that gets racked with disease and weakness and death to be like his glorious body that never will die again. We're going to spend eternity with Jesus, not as disembodied spirits. You know that? Amen. But with physical bodies that are restored to life. This body that you're seeing here right now will be transformed into a body that is fit for eternity, never get sick again, never be weakened again, and will never die again. Amen. It's, it's astonishing. But, so it's going to be it's going to be me. It's going to be me, but it'll be like new. You, like you'll see me and say, you've done something to yourself. <laughs> and I'll say, no, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. Some of you have had a makeover, right, in your life. Maybe you've done a makeover, change your hair, change out your face, whatever. Just like, I'm going to do a makeover probably in a few weeks and just shave off my beard. It'd be my makeover, voila. And when you do that, it'd be a different, a different change, a different look, a different style. That's not what we're talking about. There's this, this radical makeover Jesus is going to take this body of yours and make it. It'll still be you, but it'll be brand new. It'll never break down again. Amen. It's astonishing. Astonishing. There's going to be continuity. Just for fun, I just want to think about this with you. Like, it's still going to be you. It's going to be recognizable. When Jesus arose from the dead, he was recognized. His voice was recognized. But he was gloriously different. You still have your personality, but without the effects of sin. Yeah. Think, about, think about that. You, but without any sin inclination in you. You'll be a nicer person. Yeah. We'll like you better. You'll have your own body, but it'll be vastly improved. You'll be fully human, but indestructible. So this is what he's talking. This is what Jesus is going to do when he, turn, when he returns. We should get excited about this. He'll take your perishable body and make it imperishable. And you'll walk in holiness. Holiness has a radiance all to its own. So no more arthritis. No more diabetes. No more incontinence. No more cancer. No more coronavirus. Thank you, God. No more disease. No more pills. No more puffers. No EpiPens. No wrinkles, no receding hairline, <laughs> no injuries, no disabilities. I believe there will be work in heaven, but if you're a nurse, a doctor, or some kind of therapist, you're going to have to find a new kind of work. <laughs> we won't need you. Why is Paul telling us this about these lowly bodies being transformed? To encourage us to stay faithful. Eagerly anticipating what Jesus will do has, an, has, has the attended effect is to keep us keeping on going and trusting him. It's like, it's almost like the implicit call of this text here. It's like the Lord himself is saying, listen, count on me. Count on me. I'm going to come for you and I'm going to do this. Count on me. I'll give you this illustration then I'll sit down. The other day at our house, 
we had a code red in the house. There was a spider. <laughs> and uh, I won't get into all the details about who was freaking about the spider, but a member of our family was very upset about the spider, and it had to be dealt with in that moment. And so Leanne and I went in to investigate, and wouldn't you know, of course, where's the spider? It's up at the very top in the room, right up at the ceiling. I don't know what it's like at your place. I can never, ever find something to stand on when I need it. We lost our stepladder in the move, and we had this little step stool. I'm like, oh, and I I wanted to be doing something else at the time. So we're looking at this. How are we going to get up there? So I got down on my hands and knees, and I said, Leanne, stand on my back and get it. Now, some of you are just like, oh, some of you, that's what she did. She's like, no, I I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) I'm like, come on, honey, just do it. Because I'm thinking, unless unless we do this, unless I just get down on my hands and knees and you just get on my back, we're going to be looking all over the house forever. And I don't want to be doing this. And the spider's going to disappear. So just get on my back. She's like, I don't think that's a good idea. She gave me a number of reasons why she didn't think it was a good idea. I'm like, I'm like getting frustrated. I'm like, come on, just, just do it. So reluctantly, I am not 19 anymore, I get that. And if I'm honest, I did have a little, a little shadow of doubt in my mind at the time. But I did have confidence I could do it. So come on! So she relented, she stood on my back. But you know, I wasn't anticipating she was going to have to stand on her tippy toes on my back. Like, oh! But you know what? My back didn't give out. See, I knew I still had it in me. I knew I could do it. Now... She's forgiven for being reluctant, for standing on my back to kill a spider. But where I'm going with this is there's a sense in which weary wander, in which the Lord would say to you, come on, get on my back. Trust me. Eagerly anticipate what I'm going to do for you. Count on me. Count on me. Jesus' back is infinitely stronger than mine. And he invites you to put the full weight of your faith on him. And that's how you're going to stand firm. That's how you're going to stay faithful. Copy the pattern of mature believers. Comprehend the position in which you stand. And count on the person of Jesus. Will you count on him? Will you, by faith, put the full weight of your hope on him? Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would grant it to us to fully, really, truly put all of our dependence on you. Lord, fill us with fresh faith today that you indeed will return. You are returning. Give to us an eager anticipation of that and an eager anticipation of what you'll do when you return. I pray that as we do that, you'd remove all fear, that you'd embolden us to live on mission for you, and especially, Lord, that in counting on you and hoping on on you, Lord, that you would keep us close to you, that we would not drift, that we would not wander, but we'd be focused and faithful, living for you. Lord, we pray for this. We beg you for this. Make us a church that is filled with godly examples. Show us, Lord, put people, I pray for the brother or sister right now who's not sure who they could look at in their life. I pray that you would show them, someone in their life who can show them how to follow Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to 
get, to get the position that we've got in you. And then to count on you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.